Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 today. If you do not have a Bible and you'd still like to be able to follow along with us, uh, there are Bibles that are in the uh, chair racks there in front of you. So if you reach around, you should be able to find one of those Bibles. And if you're not familiar with where things are in the Bible, Genesis is the very first book. So if you start, uh, if you open up to the beginning and start flipping, you will get to Genesis chapter 11 pretty quickly, which is where we are going to be spending our time together this morning. <clears throat> Thomas was one of Jesus's original 12 disciples, and Thomas was able to be with Jesus day in and day out. Thomas was able to actually see, and feel, and experience the kinds of things that we're only able to read about. And not only was Thomas able to do that, but Thomas had the opportunity to see far more than is actually recorded for us in the Gospels. I mean, one of the things John's Gospel tells us is that you, if you had all the books and all the libraries of the world, you wouldn't have been able to fill them with all the things that Jesus taught and did during his time here on earth. Thomas had a front row seat to all of that. But Thomas was kind of a, a glass half empty kind of guy. Uh, the things that we read about Thomas, and there's, there's very few things, but, but his personality, his bent, was probably to be kind of glass half empty. And there's, there's some glass half emptiers, I'm sure, in us. It's in, in here with us. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and word gets back to Thomas that Jesus is actually alive, Thomas says, you know what? Uh, you can talk about that, but I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes, when I shake Jesus' hand and feel the scars from the nails in his hand. I'm not going to believe until I see that. Okay, You're going to have to prove it. And of course, we know that Jesus, about eight days later, does eventually show up to Thomas and show him that he's here. He shakes hands with Thomas so that he can... He can feel the scars that are in his hands. But Jesus says this in John chapter 20 and verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. It's interesting to me uh, that, that Thomas's nickname Throughout all of church history has been doubting Thomas. And I'm sure, I don't know if I don't know if the people in heaven have any ability to know what's going on down here, but if they do, I'm sure Thomas has to be somewhat annoyed that he does one thing that's a lack of faith, and we decided to call him Doubting Thomas for the rest of our lives. It's like if it's it's like if you have like gossiping Greg. <laughs> Or jealous Jennifer, and we just we just call you by your, your the one sin that you're predisposed to for not only the rest of your life, but as long as we look back and remember. Oh, old Greg was a gossiper, wasn't he? And I, I think I wonder sometimes if Thomas is like, I did other things, guys. I preached, 
I shared the good news of the kingdom. He probably did some miracles along with some of the other apostles. But the only thing he gets is doubting Thomas because of this instance. But Jesus is right, of course, in what he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And one of the great skills for us to build as God's people is to learn to follow what Martin Luther referred to as the naked voice of God. What does it mean to learn to follow the naked voice of God? To follow the naked voice of God is to have faith in His Word alone, to, it, to, to as, it, as it were, believe without needing to see, to, to be willing to hear God's voice and nothing else. Now let me just say that God is not against assuring our faith. God is not in any way opposed to giving us signs. And God does not ask his people, Jesus does not ask us to put faith in him with no rational basis whatsoever. The Bible never invites us to take a leap of faith against all odds, against all the information, just go ahead and do it. The Bible never does that. The Bible does all kinds of things to build our faith, to show us the trustworthiness of God. You think of all the signs God gives people throughout the Old Testament. We think about people like Gideon, who who God makes these promises to, and Gideon needs a little bit more than just the fact that God said it. Now, should Gideon have believed that God just said it? Absolutely. But Gideon needs something more than that if he's going to rush into battle. And so he does things like putting out fleece. And you know what? God graciously accommodates that. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, the time that he spends between his resurrection and ascension is racking up 500 views. Lots of different people in lots of different locales seeing him so that it's not just take his word for it, but no, the Savior really has risen from the dead. So, So faith and rationality using our minds are not opposed to each other. But I believe God wants our faith to grow so that, so that we can hear the naked voice of God and simply believe because of where it's coming from. Well, today we're going to see an example of what that looks like as we begin taking a look at the life of Abram. And in looking at the life of Abram, Genesis is going to make a big shift. Up to this point... The scope of what has been discussed in Genesis has been the entire world and the entirety of human history. We, we begin with the, the very origin story of the, the earth itself, the, the thing that you can reach your hand into and, and, and grab pieces of. It starts with that. And we can see the scope of Genesis being shown to us in the genealogies, because in the many genealogies that have led up to this point, whether they be with Adam or Noah or others, the genealogies take into account all, all people. I mean, not all people without exception, but, but it's giving us the general lay of the land and even telling us, as we saw last week, how the various clans and lands and languages and nations form. So the scope of Genesis 1 through 11 has been all people on the known earth. 
But what's going to happen now is, is Genesis, if it was on a tablet, would pinch to zoom. So we're going to zoom in now on just one family in one particular part of the earth. And Genesis 12 to 50 is going to stay narrowed in on the story of that one family. We can see this, as I said, through the genealogies. Up to this point, they have been wide in scope. But now, beginning in chapter 11 and verse 10, it is, I believe, the fifth. These are the generations marker in the book of Genesis. Yeah, it's the fifth one. Uh, We see the genealogy narrowing down to Shem. And it's just Shem's line. And it gives us ten generations from Shem to Abram. And what the Bible is doing here, what the author is telling us here is we've pinched to Zoom. We've moved in now to look at just this one family that we're going to now follow throughout the rest of the book. The end of Seth's line introduces us to the next key figure, Abram. And Abram's story begins with the sixth major section, beginning in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. If you're there, look with me at those verses. The Bible says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. All right, as I've said, Abraham is the tenth generation from Shem. We're listing out just a few details that the Bible gives us about his life. And it tells us that his family is Chaldean. And this Chaldean family lives in a place called Ur. Ur is in modern-day Iraq. So we're talking about a Chaldean family that is in modern-day Iraq... And the only biographical piece of information that we are given about this family is about Sarai. The only piece of information that kind of fleshes this family out. This this is going to be a key figure for many chapters. And really the only humanizing piece of biographical information we get about them is that they are not able to have children. Sarai is not able to have a child. And that is going to become, as those of you who've got a Bible background know, that is going to become a hugely important detail. But for now, our author just kind of leaves it there in the, in the, in the details of the setup of the story. Now the Bible tells us in verses 31 and 32 that Abram's father moves the family from Ur to Haran in Canaan where Terah dies. And I'm going to put a map up there for you so that you can see. Uh, I told the first service, uh, first service folks this. Did you bring your opera glasses today? Because if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, bring your opera glasses to church in case I might randomly decide to show a map, which I've done today. <laughs> 
I don't know if you're going to be able to see this, but in the, in the right-hand corner, okay, we've got some people saying they can. They brought their opera glasses or they just have good eyes. But you can see Ur in the far right corner, and then he's going to go all the way up uh, into that uh, top left corner. And that journey, if you could go as the crow flies, which you can't, but if you could just go in a straight line from one place to the next, that would be a 600-mile journey. Uh, basically by foot or on a donkey or something, but it's, it's going to take a minute to get there. We're talking about, we're talking about walking from ja- Jacksonville to Louisville, Kentucky. That's what we're, what we're talking about. All right, so then, beginning in chapter 12, the action's going to start to heat up because the Lord is going to appear to Abram. And the Bible says this, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, before we dive into the content of what God reveals to Abraham, what he's going to, his name changes to Abraham, okay, for those of you who don't know, and so it's really hard for me to stick with Abram. So, translate it for yourselves. He's Abram right now. He'll become Abraham later. So, before we dive into exactly the content of, of what God says to Abram, I want you to ask the question for a moment, why Abram? Out of all the people that God could have appeared to, why did he choose Abram? What kind of person was Abram that God would choose to show up to him and offer him these blessings? And if we were to not know the story, then we would come up with perhaps all kinds of reasons for why God might have chosen to visit Abram. Remember, ten generations of descendants from Shem, And he could have appeared to any one of these people along the way, but he chooses Abram. Well, is it because Ab- did, did the Lord catch Abram out of, as he was walking out of his Sunday school class that he'd been teaching and saying, Abram, before you go to the morning service, I've got something I want to share with you. Was Abram a seminary student who was almost done with his degree and trying to figure out what it was that he was going to do next? Was Abram a respected prophet in that day? Or was Abram the kind of person, you know, Genesis talks about Enoch walking with God. Maybe Abram is the kind of person that's walking with God. And so God chooses to give these, his, this divine disclosure of himself to him. Well, the Bible actually tells us who Abram was later in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, the Bible says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham... Now now Joshua's messing me up with Abraham. (sighs) Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And what were they doing? And they served other gods. So Abraham, Abram wasn't almost done with his seminary degree. 
He wasn't coming out of his Sunday school class. Abraham is at best a polytheist at this time. At at the very best, Abram worships the one true God amidst a pantheon of other local deities. And God shows up and says, you, I've got some plans for you. That's crazy. Don't let that detail get lost because Abram becomes this venerated figure. And in fact, we see Jesus talking to people and and the Jewish people of the day are still talking about the greatness of Abraham as being one of the greatest figures in their history. But Abraham, when God appears to him, is just a pagan. He's an idolater and God shows up with a simple instruction, go. Go. Abram, there's some real estate that I'd like to show you. But if you want to see this real estate, God says, you're going to have to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house. I've got some land that I want you to go to that I'm going to show you, but that's what you're going to have to leave. And I I just want you to understand how big of an ask this is. God is asking Abram to leave all of his identity markers in a way. He's asking him to leave everything that's familiar to him. He's asking him to leave the safety net that comes from a a people that you're with, a community that you're in, a family that gives you support. I mean, we've got to remember, we sometimes are reading this kind of text through modern day, our modern day lens. And for those of us who live in this time period, it's nothing for you for the job to move to a place where you don't know anyone and you don't know anything and you don't know where you're going to live and you just plop yourself down because we're able to care for ourselves without all the stuff because we've got money. But that's not how people thought or lived in that time. God is asking Abram to, to do something radical in going to this land and leaving all of these things behind. And the kicker about it all is that Abram doesn't even know where he's going. Abram can't hop onto Zillow and say, well, let's see what the housing market is like over there. He can't go to the local chamber of commerce and figure out what kind of job opportunities there might be or what, what, what neighborhoods there are to live in because, one, Zillow doesn't exist, and two, he doesn't know where he's going. God has just told him that he needs to go. And God makes some pretty staggering promises to Abram. When he appears to this pagan idolater. Listen to what God says to him. There's six promises. I will turn your family into a nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great and use you to be a blessing to other people. I'm going to bless everyone who blesses you. Not only that, I'm going to curse everyone who curses you. And the sixth promise, because of you, all families of the earth are going to be blessed. Can you imagine? God showing up to you 
and saying, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And you're reeling like, why? <laughs> uh, why me? And God makes all those promises to a guy who isn't even serving him. <laughs> what would you do? Let me talk it over with Sarai. What kind of, what kind of, uh, what kind of time frame do you need an answer in God? What are we looking at? I need to do a little. I need to do a little bit of exploring of this. Might be helpful if you gave me some other piece of information, like where in the world we're going. Start with that. And I don't know what that process looked like for Abram, but Abram's response is this in. Chapter 12 and verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we don't know how long Abram deliberated or if he deliberated at all. But God said go. And Abraham said okay. And he's 75 years old when he does this. Okay, this is not upward mobility at this, at this time in your life, even though the lifespans are longer. He's still older, and yet he goes. And they leave Haran with all their earthly possessions, as well as with Lot, his nephew. And he comes to the land of Canaan and to Shechem, which is another 400 miles away from where they've gone. So I've got another map for you. You can pull your opera glasses out again and see this. There's that long squiggly line that shows the journey. If you could do that as a straight line as the crow flies, which you can't, but if you could, that would be 400 miles. So now we're talking about walking from Jax to Gatlinburg, roughly. Once again, when he arrives, God appears to him and says this in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, which he has none of, Okay, don't forget that detail. To your offspring, which you're 75 years old and have none of, I'm going to give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Incredible story that we just uh, become so familiar with, we kind of lose the, the wonder of what exactly has happened in here. So Abraham is now situated in the land that God has promised. He's got a pocket full of promises that are just waiting to be fulfilled, promises that he can't even imagine how they could be fulfilled in his wildest dreams. But there's immediately going to be some obstacles to be overcome. There are going to be some obstacles that come along as direct challenges to both categories of promises. Because remember, he's, if, you're, if we're looking just in categories, he's promised land and he's promised descendants. As we travel through chapter 12 and then into chapter 13, we're going to see obstacles to both the promise of the land and the promise of descendants. We'll talk about that more next week. But what this passage of Scripture tells us a lot about is responding to God's call with faith. Nowhere, in the passages of Scripture that we've read together this morning, nowhere has the word faith been used. 
Nowhere in the verses that we've read together has the word belief been used. In fact, we're going to have to wait all the way until Genesis chapter 15 to hear the phrase, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We're going to have to wait all the way to chapter 15 to hear that. But let me tell you something. The fingerprints of faith and the naked voice of God are all over this passage of Scripture. And I want us to see this truth both today and next week. It's this. God's people respond to God's call by faith. God's people respond to God's call by faith. And what I'd like to do is draw out four principles for you about a faith response to God's call that we can learn from this story that's going to try to draw some connections, not only with what's going on here, but with the larger storyline of Scripture. We're going to look at two of those principles in the remaining time today, and then we're going to look at the other two next week. But the first principle that I want us to see is this. Faith is a gift that accompanies God's call. Faith is a gift that accompanies God's call. Now, both we and the Bible use the language of calling in a variety of different ways. And so sometimes we will speak in terms of God's calling on our life if we think there's a particular thing that God wants us to do, a particular place that we're to go, a particular vocation that we're supposed to have. We'll use the language of calling on that, that, that call on my life. But there's another category of the word calling that the Bible uses, particularly in the New Testament. And it's this category that I'm talking of calling that I'm talking about right now. There's a New Testament category of calling, which is the divine act of God, where he calls lost sinners from darkness to light in such a way that they respond with faith. Now, if you were with us when we had our Golden Chain series in Romans 8, you remember that, that calling is one of the links in the Golden Chain. Remember, the Bible says that, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. There's our word. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Five links and a golden chain. Every single one of those links is not an act of, of ours, but an act of God. So the question is, why did God call Abram? Well, it wasn't because he was a good Christian. It wasn't because he was an average Christian. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a, a believing person at all. At best, Abraham worshipped God along with the other deities in his particular region. But it's in this way that Abram is an example of how God calls people into relationship with himself, listen to this, on the basis of his sheer sovereign grace. That's the only reason that anyone is ever in relationship with God. The only reason any of us 
are followers of Jesus, the only reason any of us have a real relationship with God is because God has chosen in his sovereign grace to shower us with mercy. And why do people like Abram, who were going in a completely opposite direction, why do they respond positively to God's call? Well, the New Testament answer for that is because God's call always supplies the faith to answer it. That may be a new concept for some of you. But in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, one of the things that it says at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it characterizes as all human beings as being spiritually dead. Which means that though we have spiritual desires of various kinds and though we are, though we were, though we are seeking for God in, in a variety of ways, all of them unsuccessful, we are spiritually dead. And God is going to have to do something for spiritually dead people in order to enable them to follow his call. And Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. None of us gets to look at another person and say, when are you going to get it like I have? Because the only reason any of us get it is because God has gotten to us first. Faith is a gift that accompanies God's effectual calling. And I'll, I'll say this. It is a wonderful thing to have a godly heritage. Okay? It is, a, it is a wonderful thing. We have people in our congregation right now, and you may be a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth generation Christian. You may be able to trace the Christian roots backwards in your family. And what a blessing that is. God calls us as parents to try to cultivate a godly heritage. Notice the word I used, cultivate, not create. You can't create a godly heritage any more than you can give your children faith. So we, our desire as parents is to cultivate a godly heritage, and it is a wonderful thing. But not everyone has a spiritual heritage. I would venture to guess that there are many people here in the room this morning who are first-generation Christians. God chose Abram to be the recipient of his covenant blessings and through him to bless others simply by God's own sheer sovereign grace and nothing within Abram himself. And let me tell you something, God does the same thing for every single person here, regardless of whether you have a spiritual heritage or not. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers, that's quite the list and it's not exhaustive, none of those people, the Bible says, are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who can then? And the Bible goes on to say in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let me tell you something, follower of Jesus. If you have responded to God's call in faith, you too have a pocket full of promises like Abram that have been freely given to you based on absolutely nothing you've done. God has chosen in his mercy to just shower you with blessings when you were running like an idolater in the other direction. And that's whether you come from a Christian heritage or not. In fact, the Bible tells us that God's kingdom is going to be full of people who would never pass a spiritual background check. And if we're the kind of people that are, are, are super religious and don't like being uh, around people with the past, man, you're going to hate heaven. Because you're going to be rubbing shoulders every day with that list of people, and they're going to have to rub shoulders with you, but you've all inherited it. In his sovereign grace, God is constantly calling people, pursuing their own sin, but he's calling them from darkness to light. He gives us the very faith to believe. And then he says, I've got something for you. A kingdom. How often? I mean, we, we, we think about Abram. And we think, wow, wouldn't it be amazing for God to appear to you and promise you all these things? And he basically has. He promises you a kingdom that you're going to inherit. So let me just say a word briefly to a couple of different categories of of people who are here this morning. There's always the category of people who who are under the impression that they are too bad. That to, to be saved, to come to Jesus in faith, they need to try to get their, get their house in order a little bit before they show up. To, to try to do their best to at least comb their hair up a little bit and take a shower before they show up at God's throne. But the Bible tells us that there is no person who by their actions is unable to inherit the kingdom of God. There is no sin that we have committed, no checkered past that is just too much for God to save. So God calls all kinds of immoral, adulterer, swindling, greedy, reviling people to himself all the time. Let me say something to another category of person. It's the person who's maybe grown up in Christian circles, and says, I don't want to be in that category because I'm not like them. That person has to be willing to say, I may, not have the, I may not have the past that some of my brothers and sisters do, but I am equally guilty and equally unable to inherit the kingdom, no matter what goodness has been in my life. 
response from either person on either side is simply to trust in the work of Jesus, to repent of your sins, to be washed and sanctified by the work of Christ, and then to see that you have a pocket full of promises that include the inheritance of his kingdom. You can believe where you're sitting right now. There's a second principle about faith that I want us to consider this morning, and it's this. Faith doesn't demand the destination before departing. Faith doesn't demand the destination before departing. We've already seen that that faith is a gift. For any person that's walking in darkness, for that person to, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son whom God loves takes a divine act of God whereby he gives us the faith to believe. But then God calls us to exercise this gift of faith that he gives us. Faith in many ways is, is like a muscle that can be built I mean, we, we hear the disciples asking, Lord, build our faith. Lord, how can our faith grow? How can we grow in our belief? How can we grow in our trust? Abraham's faith is certainly tested and grows along the way. But Abram had to start that journey of faith without saying, well, wait a minute, God, let me know how this is going to turn out before I take the first step. The New Testament actually picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. It tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, what does it say? Not knowing where he was going. God makes Abram some incredible promises But Abram has to demonstrate that faith by renting a U-Haul. Faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, is a conviction about the reality of things that I can't yet see. This is always the pattern for those who want to become followers of Jesus. Jesus does a very similar thing in the calling of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on, maybe that's an anomaly. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers doing the brother thing today. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus calls his disciples It says, follow me. The text is interesting in what it talks about that they have to leave behind. 
They've got to drop their livelihood. They've got to leave behind a boat. They've got assets. They've got to leave behind the family business. Jesus doesn't say, hey, uh, leave your nets and your boats and your dad. Here's where you're going to stay. Here's how I'm going to fund this whole thing. Here's what we're going to spend the next three years doing. It's going to be amazing. We're going to travel the area. He doesn't say any of that stuff. Jesus walks up to them and says, follow me. Now, of course, this isn't the first time they've ever met Jesus. They've likely had contact with Jesus, and this is the moment. But what would you have done in Abram's place, or what would you have done in Peter's place? I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm going I'm to say for myself, I am far less obedient, obedient on far more information. And that's just re- reality. But here's the thing that Jesus is, is doing when he's calling us to follow him. Jesus is inviting you into a relationship of trust. And he's never going to graduate you from that relationship of trust until faith is sight. Which means that every single day that you wake up and you open your eyes, Jesus is giving you a fresh invitation to follow him. It doesn't always demand leaving behind your family or your business, your livelihood. But Jesus is calling us to follow him every day in the little things of life. And he asks us afresh every morning, follow me when you don't know where that day is going to take you. Some of you have had a week. Some of you have had a month. Some of you have had a year. You woke up one day not knowing what that day was going to hold. That's the life of trust that we as Jesus followers have to get comfortable living. Because what we want to do is negotiate. Okay, I see you asking me to follow. Why don't you tell me where we're going? Can you imagine if the disciples had known where they were going? Yeah, you're going to see some amazing stuff. Some of you are going to die. What decisions would we make when we have all the information? If you knew what some certain days had held, you wouldn't have gotten up. But what Jesus was asking his disciples then is, will you enter into a relationship of trust with me. So that every day that you wake up, for the rest of the time I give you, 
you stop saying, well, how's it going to work out? And you start saying, I'll go with you. Now, that's hard to do because it requires faith. Faith is a conviction about things that have not yet been seen. It's hard to follow Jesus in faith because he asks us to forsake stuff. While it may not be as grand as some of the things the disciples had to forsake, there are a million small things that we have to forsake every day. There's people in our lives that drive us insane, that we've got grudges against. And Jesus invites us to follow him, to let go of that stuff. And we say, yeah, but what are you going to do about them? Because I'm not sure if you're going to make them pay, and if you're not going to, I, I need to. So I'll follow you as long as you give me the assurance that you're going to do what I was going to do. I mean, we're constantly negotiating deals like that. I would love to follow you as long as you do the stuff that I was hoping I was going to do. I'm happy for you to do it. And Jesus is drawing into us a relationship that says the destination, I'll, give, I'll paint it in broad strokes, but you can leave without knowing where you're going. And we need to be a people who stop negotiating with Jesus and just look at him and say, I believe you. And I don't know where this is going to go. And I don't know the kind of hurt that's coming. And I don't know what it's going to cost. But I know that I'm going to be okay if I'm with you. God's people respond to God's call with faith. Abraham was called to a far country. You have been called to a kingdom. Like Abram, we have no idea where we're going. But like Abram, we can be absolutely sure that we are on the way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who follow you. Many people gathered here today have responded to your sovereign call in faith, and you have opened our eyes to see the beauty and glory of Jesus, and you have made us new. We have that background of such were some of you. We've been washed, we've been justified and sanctified and glorified. All of these things have been done for us. Lord, I pray for us, it's, it's hard to follow you in the thousands of decisions that we make each day. It's hard to trust because what we can see seems so much more powerful than what we can't see. And yet you still patiently invite us into a relationship of trust.
And I pray that you'd help us to walk at your side without demanding to know where we're going. Lord, if there is someone here today who does not know Jesus as Savior, who has thought that they are too good to be lumped in with the sinners or too sinful to be lumped in with the good, I pray that you would help either of those people to respond in faith to the good news of Jesus and be saved. That they would experience resurrection power this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.